Well, we come to the book that is all about the exalted king, the king on high, not Christ as he was in his humility on earth, but Christ as he is and will forever be in his glory. We come uh, to the fifth gospel, the revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory, as the first five words say. And we've been seeing in the church at Smyrna that not only is he the great and exalted king on high whom we fear, uh, as we saw with the book, uh, his letter to the church at Ephesus, He's also the lowly king who dwells in our hearts, who understands our weaknesses, who sympathizes with us. And in that context, with his exalted providence, he brings us home to glory. So the church at Ephesus as well as Smyrna go hand in glove. So we come to Revelation. If you turn to chapter 2, and we'll be starting today in verse 10. It'll be our final time with the church at Smyrna. Last time I, st- I sh- started with a story about our little dog, Ambo, that we had while we were missionaries in Singapore and how you could almost predict the weather by his shaking. It could be, you know, a clear blue day, but if there was a storm brewing anywhere in the distance, you would know it. Uh, more often than not, those storms would completely miss us, but the very thought of them would, like, you know, ruin his day. Uh, And even when they didn't miss us, even during the worst of the monsoon rains that came every afternoon during the monsoon season, um, he was always perfectly safe. He stayed warm and dry, and never once did they hurt him. So all that fear was for nothing. The dark clouds of the future were so, you know, real to him, yet so powerless over him, yet they controlled his life. And, of course, the same is true with us. As we saw, uh, what that means is that you can spell fear, F-E-A-R, in light of the doctrines that we see with Smyrna, false evidence uh, appearing real, which is just what he teaches here at Smyrna, that your fear is false evidence because you are in the arms of God's providence, as we'll see today. Revelation 2, and it starts in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We're going to be uh, finishing this epistle today. But I want you to get the impact of the whole letter all at once. And so I'd like to first review what we've been through because altogether it it packs a punch like few other books in Scripture do, few other letters. And because if you're anything like me, we can so easily forget these things and take to shaken in our boots at the slightest sound of thunder. We've seen that Christ uh, begins here by saying that he is the first and the last. That was our first week on this, which shows really the scope of his sovereignty. That was verse 8, which the book of Revelation is all about. It's about the scope of his sovereignty, which is why it begins and ends with this very phrase. I am the first and the last, Revelation 1. I am the first and the last, Revelation 21. And so with the suffering church at Smyrna, he first offers the comfort of his sovereignty. 
And that is, as we saw, that history is his story from beginning to end and in the middle. H-I-S-S-T-O-R-Y. And so was their biography. And so is yours. He'll carry you from the first to the last and all through the middle in the arms of his providence to where he wants you to be. And then if you remember, he turned from his sovereignty to the comfort of his sympathy. When he said, I am the first and the last who was dead and came, has come to life. That is, he cares about the way we feel. He's been through the whole gamut of human life. It's a, it's a much neglected doctrine of what, feels, uh, of what he feels on the level of his emotions. And so we need to let it sink in. He became dead. If you remember, that was the, the translation the, uh, the, uh, of the original Greek there. He be, Greek there. He became dead. That is, he went through the whole process of dying, just like we do, from birth to death. He understands how we feel because he's been there, which is a good part of why he really does care. As he says all through the Scripture, like David said, you have kept count of my tossings. I love this, Psalm 56, 8. You have put my tears in your bottle. He cares. That's his sympathy. But then we saw Roman numeral 3, the third week in it, his empathy. He says, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Back then I've been through it, so I understand. And then he goes to the present. I know. He moves from the past to the present. That is, it's more than the fact that he's been there in the past. I know your tribulation and your poverty in the present, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy. I know particular things about what you're going through of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. What do these things mean? Well, sympathy says, I care about your suffering because I've been there. Empathy goes deeper. It says, I really know. I feel your suffering. Sympathy cares about their feelings. Empathy feels their feelings. First, we saw that Christ's sympathy comes from his remembrance of his lot in life. But then we saw that his empathy comes from his experience of your lot in life. The difficulties of your life are not just a distant memory for him. No, the difficulties of your life are a direct experience for him. Fundamental doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of his omniscience. That is, in all our afflictions, he is afflicted right now. He bears it all, which he did on the cross too. So with the suffering church, Christ starts with a reminder of his sovereignty, and then he gives them an infusion of, you know, of his sympathy and of his empathy. And then, as we saw last week, he returns to his sovereignty at the end of verse 10. And so it goes from sovereignty to sympathy and empathy to sovereignty. It's sympathy and empathy couched in sovereignty. The first week we saw the scope of his sovereignty at the very beginning. From I'm the first and the last. That's what he led off with. And now he goes back to his sovereignty and he starts to unpack it in terms of what it means for us personally. And so we have Roman numeral four. That's this week. Point A. First, the fact of his sovereignty or really of his providence. It's in verse 10. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, we saw last week that if you listen to his voice through the original Greek, it sounds different than in the English. It, it, the way it sounds is like this solve, sovereign balm on a troubled soul. This marble calm of the one who's the first and the last. So the fact of his providence is kind of implicit by the sound of these verses, but it's also explicit. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison. What he's doing here is in his sovereignty, he's predicting the future. Because, of course, he knows the future. And so that sovereign calm that we can feel in these verses is reinforced by the fact that there's a sovereign plan. It's the prediction that reveals a plan. He's telling them that what, what Satan is about to do because Satan is just this little black pawn in his hand. That's the idea here. A prediction about the future he's giving that's also in his hands because it's all in his hands. Who's the first and the last? And so we don't have to fear what we're about to suffer. But there's more. We move from the foundational uh, fact of his providence, even over Satan, to really the incredible uh, finesse of his providence Again, verse 10, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. We saw that testing is a work of God. It's a work of God through which he refines us. Because notice who gets to do his work. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. This is really the finesse of his providence where he works hand in glove with no less than the greatest evil. The, the personal embodiment of evil is upon in his hands. He works through the devil to bring about the greatest good. You see it all over the place in Scripture from first to last, Genesis to Revelation. The finesse of his providence in which even Satan is his pawn through which he always turns evil into good to the point that the greatest Evil in the history of humanity is, in fact, the greatest good, the cross of Calvary, and that's now the pattern of our lives. Worse is better in God's economy to the point that the worst of the worst is, in fact, the best of the best. Therefore, even the worst of the worst is false evidence appearing real whatever the worst might have been or might be now or might will be for you. Which moves us from last week to this week, from the foundational fact of his providence to the incredible finesse of his providence to really the invaluable fruit of his providence, the fruit. It has to do with what it means to be tested as we really unpack these words of Christ which are so precious. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. It's the same word 
that you'll find in 1 Peter 4, 12, where it says, which talked about the fiery ordeal that came upon them for their testing. The image here is of being refined by fire. Like it says in 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you greatly rejoice, famous verse, even though for now a little while you may have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is he's talking about the praise and glory and honor that will come from us and through us through our glorified bodies as a result of all that testing by fire. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested like that. The image here is of a refining fire, which is about the worst pain possible, through which you come out like gold. Fire is the worst. Once again, same pattern. Gold is the best. And so you have the worst possible pain working the greatest possible good. It's like someone said, a bar of steel is worth $5. This was a while back. I, got, I clipped this about 20 years ago, so it's probably far more today. But same point. When wrought into horseshoes, it's worth $10. If made into needles, it is worth $350. If into penknife blades, it's worth $32,000. If into springs for watches, that same bar of steel is worth $250,000. But what a drilling the poor bar must undergo to be worth this, right? Yet the more it is manipulated, the more it is hammered, the more it is passed through the fire and beaten and pounded and polished, the greater the value. And what that means is this, the pain is not worthy to be compared to the gain. The sufferings of this present day are not worthy to be compared to the glory that it's producing for all eternity. It's suffering to glory. It's fire to fruit. The incredible fruit of his providence. It's embodied in that word testing. But there's more. Because he moves from the fruit of his providence to the faithfulness of his providence. Point point D in your notes. His unfailing faithfulness. Because Christ goes on to say, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Bible scholars disagree on exactly what the number 10 stands for here. But the overall meaning is clear. It has to do with his providence. It's like, it's like hidden in plain view. It's so obvious. It, it, it represents some finite period of time that's been determined by God. It, it won't go on forever because he is faithful to his purposes and to his people. If you think about if you think about it, that's got to be one of the hardest parts of any trial. That is how long, if it's going to go on forever, right? They're, they're the most, four most difficult words in the whole Bible, but, uh, at least in terms of those who are saying them. How long, O oh Lord, all through the Psalms, all through our lives. How long, O oh Lord, Psalm 13, will you forget me forever? It sure feels like it. 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? I know it's just the blink of a life, but right now it feels like an eternity in the blink of a life. So often the hardest part of any suffering is not the present, but the future. It's the fear of the future. And in particular, how long, oh Lord, is this going to go on forever? You know, a while back I was reading an oral history of the Great Depression. It's a classic. Some of you may have read it by Studs Terkel. It's called Hard Times. One common theme here has to do with this very fear of the future, not knowing how long. Christ is talking about a 10-day period, but it's in the book of Revelation. So putting it into the context of Revelation, he's talking here about the tribulation or the judgment or whatever that was going to likely come over that area or over the earth. It cycled through history. And so it wasn't just personal with Smyrna. It could have been global, and he was preparing them for that. Just like we need to be prepared. Mary Owsley was one of the many who he interviewed. She was Kentucky-born. She married an Oklahoma boy when he came back from World War I. She said that during the Depression, the majority of the people were hit and hit hard. A lot of them were mentally disturbed, you're bound to know, because they didn't know when the end of all of this was coming. How long? And if you're not prepared with the answer for that, you can be in trouble. There are a lot of suicides that I know of from nothing else but just that they couldn't see any hope for a better tomorrow. How long? I absolutely know of some who did this. Part of them were farmers and part of them were businessmen even. They went flat broke and had no hope and they committed suicide on the strength of that and nothing else on the strength of, or the weakness of how long. We, we put ourselves through so much on the strength of that and nothing else. On the strength of what might happen or how long it might take. For which the letter to the church at Smyrna is a really good antidote. You know, Studs Terkel, book, hard, book, his book Hard Times, has reminded me of how we tend to go from one extreme to another. Either we think adversity is going to last forever, or, and this is equally bad, we think prosperity is going to last forever, and so there's a rude awakening. Characteristic way mankind thinks. In prosperity, we live like there's no tomorrow, and whole societies can do that. Then adversity come, and comes, and we live like there's no tomorrow, like it's all over. And of all people, Christians don't have to do that. And so we're never ready for tomorrow, which is just what Christ was doing here with Smyrna. Whatever that tomorrow was, in the context of Revelation, it was likely some judgment that it, or some adversity or whatever that was cycling through history through which God gets people's attention. Overall, he was preparing them for tomorrow, for a worst-case scenario, and he was telling them what was going to happen so they could get ready, and he's doing the same with us today. And so what we're looking at here in this letter is what can make us ready for anything, whether personally or globally. That's what Revelation is good for. 
And good thing, because perhaps now more than ever, we need to be ready for anything globally too. Which is the whole point of Revelation. You could write it as two words, a banner over the entire book. His point is, be ready for anything. But too often we don't get ready because of this, you know, this blind optimism that even Christians can get swept up in. in. And, uh, and then because we're not ready, it's followed by, you know, blind pessimism. If anything, we live in a day of blind optimism. As though what goes up is never going to come down. You know, looking at the stock market or whatever in the face of the fact that things are far worse now than in 2008 with the last crisis. Now there are trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of global debt. It's a governmental debt bubble now and not just companies. We got political divisions that could lead to civil war. Anger against Christians that is huge in this country and that circles the globe. We live in an age when God could very well give us our just desserts and another cycle of judgment could come through history to get our attention. If it doesn't happen, as Billy Graham said, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like Walter Lippmann wrote before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that started World War II. There was blind optimism before that. He said, until God got our attention. He said, millions will listen to and prefer to believe those who tell them that they need not rouse themselves. Have you fallen into that? Those who tell them that they need not rouse themselves and that all will be well if they only continue to do all the pleasant and profitable and comfortable things they would like to do best. Is that you? We need to be ready. Just like Christ warned the church at Smyrna to be ready. There's so many parallels between our day and that day. And so this letter to the church at Smyrna is really appropriate for our day. Here's, here's just one more quote. Here's what E.Y. Yip Harburg said in Stud Turkle's book. He was a songwriter during the 30s. You may have heard some of his psalms. Uh, he, was, um, he wrote a famous Depression-era play called Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Here's what he said. Compare it to, to today. We thought America's business was the rock of Gibraltar. That was before the crash of 29. We were a prosperous nation and nothing could stop us now. A brownstone house was forever. You gave it to your kids and they put marble fronts on it. There was a feeling of continuity. There it is. This is the myth of continuity that'll put you to sleep. Which revelation breaks right through. There was a feeling of continuity. If you made it, it was there forever. You may have made it into retirement, but I'm telling you, it's not there forever. So wake up. But the point here is this. It's a question. Whenever it comes, whatever happens, whether personally or globally, how long is it going to last? This is how we prepare for that future Whatever happens to our future, how long is it going to go on? Well, I'll tell you how long, and I've got it on good authority. Two words, 10 days. (laughs) Amen? 
I wish I could say it with his marble calm, like a sovereign balm, 10 days. Whatever comes, ready yourself before it comes, like the church at Smyrna did with the realization, yeah, we will have tribulation for 10 days. What Christ is saying here is this. It will be a prescribed period of time, providentially prescribed. I will not forget you. I will not leave you there a a day longer, not a minute longer than will be required. I will be faithful to end it when the time is right. And you can rest in that no matter what. Many of you have come out of the depression and you're proof positive that that is true. And you've got your stories. He brought you through. And what that means is this, when it feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, when it feels like how long, O Lord, that is false evidence appearing real. It means that the dark clouds of the future that can be so real to us, yet so powerless, are are so powerless over us and so they don't have to control us. It means you you can bank on point D, the faithfulness of his providence. But there's more. One more point, and that is point E, the finale of his providence. That's the last line of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you what? The crown of life. That's eternal life in glory, stoked up like it would never have been without the trials and tribulations. And so the final thing is this. How do you get ready? It's to realize this. Not only will he turn the worst into the best through the finesse of his providence, not only will it result in the fruit of his providence, not only will it happen through the uh, faithfulness of his providence, it'll all come together in the eternal finale of his providence, what we call the consummation in a new heaven and a new earth. Crown of life. This is the highest expression of his providence. The greatest demonstration of it will be the consummation. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you that crown. Can't get any worse than that, death. Might be a martyr's death for us in this country, the way things are going, you never know. But it can't get any better than that and that is eternal life. The worst that can befall us is the falsest of all false evidence by compared to the best. Compared to the best that it brings to us. Some of you will die, he says, a martyr's death. Be faithful unto death and I will be faithful unto, to you unto life everlasting. And we're going to spend the next four weeks focusing on the point E. In the book of Revelation, the grand finale of it all in eternity, which is what the scripture holds out as the highest reason why we duke it out here below. Christ concludes in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, these are his final words and here is where the sword comes in again, it's no longer balm. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This is the pain that will go on forever because he's a judge. The scripture calls it the lake of fire. 
which will be their eternal finale, which of course is a whole other subject. He who overcomes. Christ's overall point is this when he says that. He who overcomes. He says that to each of the churches. He's saying, you've got a role to play. It's not just let go and let God. We must overcome. We must be faithful even unto death. And it's hard. And he understands that. Nothing wrong with you that it's hard. It was hard for him. Got to overcome. But all that we do is in the arms of his providence. It's based on the fact of his providence and the finesse and the faithfulness and the fruit and the eternal finale of his providence that he holds out there so that we will overcome. Add it all up and what that spells is this. It's just what Christ began with and that is three words. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear what you are suffering because faithful is he who calls you and he will what? He will bring it to pass. Let me close with just a couple of things. Are you shaken in your boots right now, you know, at the sound of some distant thunder? I sure do. I have, I have been this week. Or maybe for you, the storm is already here. Those monsoon rains are beating against your roof and they've got you shaken like a leaf. But you know something? If you think about it, it's a good thing to shake. We don't want to condone the lack of faith, but on the other hand, I praise God for my fear because in his providence, he uses that for a good too that would not have happened otherwise. I'd be on my merry way without my fear. In fact, that's what you can be sure they were doing at Smyrna. They, as they listened to Christ's words, they, they, they were coming to him. They were clinging to his every word. And that's all you need to do. Just cling to his word. That's all we need. We found all that in a single verse. <laughs> Just like we put into the hands of those kids, that's all they need. Just go to him and he's all you need. And you can be sure that the people in the church of Smyrna were clinging to his every word and the light of what they were going through and of what he was predicting. The second thing is this. In some ways, the bottom line is to be like the disciples that you see up there in the boat. Not the ones who are panicking on the front of the boat, trying to change the storm and to make their way through. You'll never do it on your own. We need to be like the ones who are gathered around him in the back of the boat. I praise him for my fear because just like it drove my little dog Ambo to my side, it sends me to his side, to the back of the boat. It's like David said, in you, my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Psalm 57, 1, which is just where we need to be now more than ever. Like Ambo, we need to be right on his heels, safe in his shadow, wherever he leads, and he will take care of the rest, just like he did in the storm up there. It's a parable of our every storm.
because he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, Psalm 91.1, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, which is the opposite of fear. He turns fear into faith. Christ closes in verse 11. He who has an ear, he says, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. And what does the Spirit say? Well, with him in your boat, it's like it says at the bottom of your notes, just like last week, and you can fill in the blanks. With him in your boat, you'll end up saying, yeah, it's false evidence appearing real. Praise God. You will not be afraid of terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon, for you have made the Lord my God your dwelling place. Father, we want to thank you that he is a mighty king over us who is sovereign in and through it all. But he is the Lord who's in us who understands what we go through and who bears us up through it all to be with you forever. Help us to rest in this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.